great name. Amen. Thank you, Wade. So, I'm not going to be teaching on leadership excellence this week, as we left you guys completely in the lurch last week. <laughs> we thought it was God and Country Day, and so we took our family to Schlitterbahn. <laughs> Don't let that be an indictment of how we value God and Country Day. And an email went out to everybody letting them all know that they were actually having Sunday school class. So for the seven of you that were here last week that we missed leaving people in capable hands of, I apologize. So was it excruciating, Kent, or was it okay? It was good. Okay, I don't even know what happened. I think it just broke. <laughs> Literally, it was Thursday night of this week, and Adrian was like, oh my gosh, by the way, they had Sunday school last week. I said, oh no. Um, oh, she's great. That's awesome. Yeah, if Nancy's in here, you don't need to worry about it. So, um, so we're going to be starting a series called In Light of Eternity. It's going to be a three, maybe four-part series. And it's interesting always how it dovetails with kind of what God's doing in Ryan's heart and what he's doing kind of the life of us as uh, a body. But I'll just kind of say what was the kind of stirrings behind it. Um, Adriana was gone for a couple of days this week to visit with uh, one of her friends at a they just go to a, a girls weekend getaway. So it was my time with the kids. Three days, or two hours, uh, let's say two days and 18 hours, we'll say is kind of how I plotted it out. So one of the nights, my son Graham, my nine-year-old, slept in bed with me because that's the fun thing to do is go sleep in the bed with dad. And so um, when we were laying, there was a really sweet, precious moment. And uh, he said, you know, dad, I really don't like thinking about eternity. I was like, well, tell me, you know, what you, he says, it scares me. He says, it, it, it freaks me out. And thinking about living forever, I'd rather just it all go black and go away. And I thought, I mean, that's a really, I said, I feel the same way. I'm, I'm going to be fully honest with you guys. I don't like thinking about eternity. I personally would rather, it's just me being honest. It, it, I know that I was created for eternity. I know that I'm an immortal soul. I know that we are. But it's easier in my mind to just kind of have a place where it's all tucked away and then I disappear and I dissociate from consciousness rather than thinking about just this in perpetuity of foreverness. And I know that I'm going to be with God. I know I'm going to be fulfilled. But I'd rather just be able to section it off and say, no, I'm, I'm done with it. I don't, I don't understand what forever looks like and what that means. It's easier for me just to focus on this good life, lived well, fulfilled as best I can, and then it disappear. Um, and it's actually coming to play a little bit more so I've been watching has anybody else watched the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary on Netflix just a little bit of it okay so I'm going to be weaving some of this back in it's really really good and it's it ties back into uh have you watched it now now he will (laughs) so it ties back into if y'all remember my uncle Bill died a couple of weeks back and uh he was a what was called a long range reconnaissance patrol basically a a green beret in Vietnam and so it's it's really interesting me going back and kind of Replotting his maps and the story and the greater thing of Vietnam, and so it's 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 mature audiences only. You're facing and seeing these people tell their stories of what it is like, and this is one of the things that was so unique about Vietnam. You'll find find this out. Different from so many other wars, they had a tactic in Vietnam that the Viet Cong, the Northern Vietnamese Army, called "grab them by the belt buckle fighting," because Americans had planes that we just drop bombs and artilleries and napalm on people. And you could always do that if there's a distance between your team and the Vietnamese, right? 
and they realized really quickly the only way that you could keep the Americans from calling in air support is by getting and fighting up, I mean, literally within feet of the Americans because they're not going to call in bombs and artillery on their own position. And so there's these stories of these people sharing, and you can see them going back in the recesses of their mind, reliving those moments of face-to-face, life-and-death encounters of not just their stories, but the stories of the ones that they care about dying, saving them, rescuing them. I mean, it's intense. And it's, it's, it hasn't started me thinking, but it just accelerated again my fresh thinking of the in light of eternity aspect that we are called to live under, called to live in. It's too easy for me to live my life not in light of eternity. Just focusing on what is expedient, just focusing on what makes me feel fulfilled, what makes me come alive, as opposed to evaluating everything, not just in light of today, but what is truly eternity, regardless of whether I want everything to fade to black or not, it won't. And so when I ask myself, what's my purpose in light of eternity? We're going to talk about purpose next week. We're going to be talking about people and then we're going to be talking about parenting and relationships and how do we deal with this in light of eternity my purpose we all know that our gifts and callings are irrevocable that God has created us for a purpose that he who began a good work is faithful to complete it we all know all these things but honestly if you ask me what my purpose is often it's to be distracted I like distracting myself from reality and so great story with my kids we're sitting there, and I mean, obviously, we have rules about, you know, when we watch TV, and when we play video games, and when mom's gone, it's kind of like all rules are out the door, right? Like, I don't care, it's hour 43 of watching TV and the Thundermans. I don't care, just do it. Um, we came to a point mid-Friday, and we were TV'd out, and video gamed out, and movied out, and everything else. We had this space and time where I was like, I need to do something. I want to do something. And there was a calling in my heart that said, you can connect with God. You can talk. You can engage. You can speak with one man with another. Uh, what it was said of with Moses, that he spoke with God man to man as a man does with his friend. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't want to do that. That takes effort. That takes energy. I just want to dissociate. I just want to detach. I just want to entertain or titillate or distract myself. I'm not saying any of you guys are like that, but that's my natural that's my natural want to. Because I want to numb myself to quietness. I don't when it's too quiet, it's too easy for me to think about things that cost me effort, energy purpose as opposed to just allow myself to be distracted by what is and what doesn't fulfill but maybe scratches the itch of what I want for that moment um reminded me of you guys remember the movie Christmas Vacation and I love it Grim Grimball goes get in here Grimball his name is Grimm's Griswold, right? He's like, uh, here's your gift, sir. He's like, uh, just put it over there with all the other gifts. Give me somebody, anybody. And give me somebody while we're waiting for that. You know, you're just looking for anything that fills that space. Because I can't have this moment of connection. 
easily without the choice and engaging and diving into as opposed to just living, breathing in and out of connection with Holy Spirit and fulfillment of my purpose in life in God. Um, and what's interesting is we clatter ourselves towards purpose in crisis. Um, when we don't have money, it's the finding and the obtaining and the paying down of debts. When we don't have health, it's the finding and the triaging and the solutions of health. It's, it's, but when everything's okay, when the stillness starts to come, there's not a crisis that causes us inconvenience. That's kind of where we are right now. I mean, like we're healthy, thank the Lord. Okay financially, thank the Lord. And you're sitting there saying, okay, where, where, is, where is the... It's like, the, I remember somebody said once... It's only those who are on the mountaintop. Who have, it's those who are on the mountaintop who have the clearest picture of what that mountaintop lacks, as opposed to those who are aspiring to what the mountaintop can, can give. You guys with me on that? It's because when you're on the mountaintop, you're realizing, all right, I won the Super Bowl. I'm married to a supermodel. Tom Brady, if you go and look at his, uh, there's a whole thing about Tom Brady and his purpose in life. This is after he won his fourth Super Bowl. And they said, what is this like? You're married to a supermodel. You've got all these endorsement deals. And he's like, man, I've never been more aware of how vapid it all is. So first things first, we're going to look at a couple of different things here. We have to get to the first things first of what does even living in light of eternity look like or mean to us. And the first things first is that we are of infinite worth. And so this is easy. It sounds like a Disney trope. But really, when we dive deep into that, we have to ask that question, what does of infinite worth mean? What does an immortal soul mean? Are we really just hairless apes? Because again, we're relegated to that emotionally. And I'm not even asking about your position on uh, evolution, macro, micro. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the dissociation of value from man. Now we place value on certain people and certain types of people and certain people who bring value to other people. But as a whole, as society, we're tearing down the worth of man. And we got to speak to the worth of what every single humankind person is before we can actually understand what in light of eternity speaks to you guys with me on that, right? Because otherwise we don't understand what value of terms we're dealing with. We don't understand what the stakes are. So this understanding called Imago Dei, this, the image of God, it comes, it comes to bear the first time in, in Genesis. And so we're going to just read Genesis 126 and 127. What does the image of God mean. Genesis 126 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let these men have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, all of the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And there is a uh, theologian, DGA, DJA Kleins, basically went back and, and did a treatise on this. He says, basically, the grammar, the grammar favors the translation that God created man as his image over God created man in his image. According to Genesis 1, man does not have the image of God, nor is he made in the image of God, but he is himself the image of God. Humankind then was created to be a copy or a graphic image of the creator, a formal, visible, and understandable representation of who God is and what he is really like. 
man's fall into sin did not destroy or remove the image of God. It merely marred or disfigured it. This is a crucial distinction, since it is the imago Dei that makes us different than the rest of creation. So it's not that God created us like himself. It's basically God created us as himself in creation, and that is what gave us worth. And and, and an interesting, uh, another theologian, Louis Burkhoff, said the doctrine of the image of God in man is the greatest importance in theology. For that image is the expression of that which is most distinctive in man and in his relation to God. The fact that man is in the image of God distinguishes him from the animal and every other creature. So this is going to get a little bit uh, rough, but stick with me. Um, back to the Vietnam thing. There's, some, there's a guy named John Musgrave who tells a story. Episode 5, if you go back and watch this. In episode 5, uh, I forget exactly what it's called, but obviously the Viet Cong, the Vietnamese, uh, as a reference, were, you know, Viet Cong, Vietnamese, but were referred to as gooks or chinks or whatever other zips. And they, they go back into the etymology of this and say, well, why do we do this? And they went back and they began to realize that, and not begin to realize, they knew this. It was premeditated from the beginning. It's encapsulated into one statement that John said. He said, I only killed one human being in Vietnam, and that was the first man that I ever killed. And I was sick with guilt about killing that guy, and I'm thinking I'm going to have to do this for the next 13 months. How am I going to do this? I'm going to go crazy. And then I saw a Marine step on a landmine, and that's when I made my deal with the devil. And then I said, I'll never kill another human being as long as I'm in Vietnam. However, I will waste as many gooks as I can find. I will smoke as many zips as I can find. But I'm not going to kill any body. We turn the subject into an object. It's racism 101. It turns out to be a very necessary tool when you have children fighting your wars for them to stay sane doing any work. And it's the relegation of people to things that allows you to encounter them without grace. That allows you to encounter them without an immortal soul. That allows you to see them as an impediment to your path of joy as opposed to a, a, a person whose life, whose hopes, whose realities have to be navigated by the grace of God. And... I'll read one last quote. I want to hear you guys' thoughts by a famous theologian named Chris Pratt. <laughs> how, how many of you guys saw the uh, speech that he gave a couple of weeks ago? I'd encourage you to go watch it. Chris Pratt said, does anybody not know who Chris Pratt is? Everybody, yeah. Okay. So Chris Pratt is like on Jurassic World. He is the hero from any movies. Star-Lord. So... So, so he's, a, he's, a, he's a movie star. So let's listen to what Chris Pratt has to say. He told this to a group largely of, well, of all the people watching, millions, largely under 25-year-old people. He said, you have a soul. Be careful with it. Nobody is perfect. People will tell you that you're perfect just the way that you are, and you are not. You are imperfect. You will always be, but there is a powerful force that designs you that way. And if you are willing to accept that, you will have grace. And grace is a gift. Like the freedom that we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for with somebody else's blood. Don't forget that. 
don't take that for granted. And when it first comes to realizing in light of eternity the value, the implicit value, the image of God, I don't care who it is, the Hitlers of the world, the uh, Bin Ladens of the world, the uh, Donald Trumps or the Osama, that's not Osama's, but Obama's of the world, whoever it is, whoever we like to triangulate into our object as opposed to allow to be our subject, um, that is someone who is created in the image of God. That is someone who does have an immortal soul, not an eternal soul, but an immortal soul. Eternal means it's never starting, never ending, always being, it's a state of perpet- in perpetuity. Immortal basically means that there was a start to you. You were created in the image of God, but there is no end to you. And unless we resolve ourselves around that to begin with, nothing in light of eternity makes a difference. The person in front of you, no matter what their rank, no matter what their position, their ability to give back, or their destructive power within which they operate. I'm talking about your policeman, right, Phil? You're coming across bad dudes, and I firmly believe in bad dudes. There are bad people out there. I firmly believe in justice. But at the same time, the root of everything has to be that this person was created in the image of God with an immortal soul for which Jesus died. Love to hear you guys' thoughts on that. And just help me flesh out these ideas before we move forward to the second thought. parenthetical I mean for all of for those of you who are directly involved in the the darkness daily of what humanity is it's not it's not a fairy tale and we're going to get to that in just a second we have typically a tendency to run away or to overcompensate and that healthy tension of staying right in the middle we don't we have a really really hard time doing Um, but for those of you who actually do go out there and face what is truly not just darkness and, and and bad guys the reprehensible dismembering of society and people that's that's there it's it's actively being engaged by people out there um so i don't want to belittle that thought any other thoughts about this first calling to the imago dei or the image of god and what that means to us in light of eternity james i think it goes back to what you said earlier about how our natural tendency when things are, are calm you know there's no catastrophe taking place and you immediately want to disengage. You just want to turn it off and, and not think about the bad stuff and, and just not think about anything. Uh, because as soon as you turn it back on or you step outside the door or you go to work, uh, it immediately starts up full speed. It, it's not partial. It's not like, I'm going to ease into the day and kind of deal with what comes. It's full speed. You're on. Everybody else is. And so... It, but you've also got to be conscious about don't let yourself get disengaged. Mm-hmm. You still have to stay engaged with your 
kids at home. Just because you had a rough day at work doesn't mean you have the right to be disengaged at home with the kid. Guilty. Yeah. And even as you're speaking, the reality of the impossibility of a human being to accomplish that becomes more clear than ever, right? Because what's asked of you at this moment, at this moment, is impossible to man. Mm-hmm. We don't have the wherewithal within ourselves to sequester that. Well, I was a policeman today and I did this and now I'm back home and I'm really loving. We do not, as people, have that capacity within us, which is the reason of the cross exists that the Holy Spirit has come to give us power. Did you want to say something, Bell? No? Amen in that period. Amen. So second, we're all created in the image of God first. Second, we're hopelessly lost. So Keller, my eleven year old, it's kind of a toss up as to whether we started watching a World War II documentary. And again, I'm not I'm not a masochist. I'm not a sadist. I don't like people dying, but I think there's a place of where it's important for kids of a certain age to begin to understand the realities of how life works and what it means to have the freedoms that we have, right? So he's like, can I watch this Vietnam thing with you? And I was like, eh, I don't know. But we took a little bit of time to watch it together, and we kind of paused it and processed through it. But he asked me a question. I mean, we finished one of them. I think it was the third one, and it just kind of sits there, and he's pensive. He's thoughtful. And he says, Dad, is there, a, is there a, a chance for peace to actually exist, world peace to actually exist? And it's just really, really, really hard to do, or is there no chance for world peace at all? And I said, there's no chance. There isn't. The darkness in the heart of man, the brokenness of humanity, the original sin that exists within us, it's not. It's not just a... Uh, and, and, you, and you see this as these Vietnam War protests. Sorry, when I watch shows, all of it kind of bleeds in together. So for the next week or two, we might be talking about this Vietnam stuff. But you see all these people, you know, um, all these pithy platitudes. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, peace, give peace a chance, all the above. We all really, really value that. We really want that. We all really want peace. It's not attainable within the heart of man originally. Or it's not sustainable. I'm, maybe I'm not exactly right. Maybe it is attainable. For moments, for flashes, for glimpses, but it's not sustainable because there is a darkness that is at work within us that needs the blood of Jesus and that needs the redemption of the cross. And that is the story of the good news. The good news is not some sort of platitude to those who are, uh, you know, needing just a a kick in the pants and a, a pat on the back in the right direction. It is a single candle of hope for those who are in utter darkness saying that there's hope here there is salvation go back and read isaiah 61 it's the it's the it's the psalm that uh, it's the isaiah that jesus uh said about himself when he first revealed himself i've come to give sight to the blind to give healing to the broken to set the captives free that does not exist apart from the cross apart from the cross the, gr- the grace of Jesus, the reality of what that meant for him to come live the life and die for us. There isn't a hope that is sustainable or a solution that will last. It's, it's not. That means that the stakes are epically high. Think about this. If 
goodness or peace or attainment of fulfillment was really just at the end of a thoughtful and pensive and heartfelt conversation between peers really engaging each other on thoughtful levels and coming out with a solution, Jesus didn't have to die. There's no reason I would send my son to go die for people that could attain hope, fulfillment, and purpose for themselves. I wouldn't do that. Jesus, the cross doesn't exist if, if this is attainable by us. So the reality of the cross, that salvation, Acts 4.12, is found in no one else, that there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved, speaks to the depth of the stakes that are involved in this eternal existence within which we exist. The person that you come across at the lunch line is an immortal soul who might not be here tomorrow. And that's one of the things I'm talking when I'm seeing this. There's, there's stories of guys, and again, it's Vietnam, it's a war zone, so you're engaging in people who are actually actively trying to kill you. But the stories of guys who graduated West Point, all four of them go out together. The first day, Charlie Company, two of them are in Charlie, one of them's in Alpha, and Alpha just as a coincidence of time, opportunity, and providentiality, I don't know happened to engage uh, the Viet Cong over here, completely killed them all. Two days out of the academy, right? They're dead. And the, the vapidity, the quickness, the reality with which these moments have eternal significance, that's what I lose when I dissociate. That the person in front of me might be going home to an abusive situation, might be somebody who on Facebook is getting um, berated or made fun of or bullied and decides to kill themselves. I don't know. Now, again, we're going to go to the other side of the coin that suddenly says, oh, my God, what can I do? I'm oppressed. I can't function because I'm engaging this eternal war without hope. We're going to get to that in a second. But we need to let the density of what the reality of our eternity and the immortal soul, the immortal soul and the imago Dei of everybody that we encounter weigh on us. So third, the, the consequence of eternity, Matthew 25, 31 through 46 or so. And I'm going to say this. So a lot of you guys haven't been around for a while. We've been having this class for six, seven years or so. And so we've had whole conversations about, uh, was it hilarious? So yeah, yeah, I'm like Ryan. Truly, any story I tell up here is 90% true and 10%. Adrian always comes back afterwards. That actually didn't happen that way. Like, That's how I remember it happened. So five years, whatever. Um, so we've had conversations specifically about heaven, about hell. What is hell? What does hell look like? I don't, I don't want to go there right now. Um, but there's some very well, I believe, thought out, fleshed out processes about what hell looks like. That being said, we have to deal with the reality of eternity. Whether you feel like it's literally 
Satan dancing around with a pitchfork, which he's not. Satan is conscripted to hell. He's not the Lord of hell. He is the recipient of hell, FYI. All the far side pictures that you see of Satan with a little pronged fork lording over hell that's not any reality within here. Whether you believe it's any scope of literal fire all the way to just, you know, disintegration, there's a place where the immortal soul is spoken to specifically by Jesus. Matthew 25 Jesus talking, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place on the sheep, he placed the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, man, I love to be able to write this stuff out. I'd love to be able to like redline different things in the Bible and say, hey, if you're, you know, those who really don't know Jesus, they just, you know, kind of get this and they just kind of disappear. And I can't, I can't. One of the things that you have to understand about where we sit is the word of God has to be above us and we have to be below it. So if you ever come across me or anybody else from this stage, podium, this uh, high and elevated stage, no, <laughs> this place twisting the words of God to make them sense because it's how we want it to be. We are wrong. We need to sit under this and ask God to give us wisdom, discretion, understanding of what this means. This is asking of us a belief that the immortal soul, there is eternal consequence. There is either a, what is considered a hell or a Gehenna and a heaven or an Abraham's bosom or a fulfillment of life eternal. What that looks like, I don't know, but there's an eternal consequence. And I can't get away from that. The Bible won't let us, that I can see. And so when we engage that reality, when we engage that reality, what do we do as people of faith? Well, typically this is also a pendulum. I mean, I don't know about you, but my life, there's been times when I'm loaded up with like two water pistols and a water balloon ready to charge hell, right? And there's other times where I'm like sitting on a couch with a Lay's potato bag, let me watch, you know, the Real Housewives of whatever. I'm a, I don't ever watch Real Housewives, by the way, but I'm just giving you a, a mental image. Me as a person can fit easily into both of those categories. You know, the, my time in life I've centered somewhere around those. But this is typically what I find. If you're a person of faith, who has made Jesus Lord of your life, then I feel like probably we don't ever completely disengage for the most part. And even if we do completely just disengage, there's a place where cords of loving kindness draw us back into caring about people, to caring about their futures and our futures and the the purpose of it all. Typically, I think it goes into two separate categories for the most part. One is that we passively engage life and passively engage people. And I want to say a couple of things about this in here if you want to add to or agree or disagree. 
What does passive engagement look like? That means we respond to things as they come to us, right? A need shows up, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll help with that. We make little choices or concessions as we feel comfortable. Yeah, I can, I can foot that sacrifice. Doesn't stretch me too far outside of the bounds of my comfortability. That's my thought process when I'm passively engaged, right? Now, I'm not patting myself on the back about passive engagement. I just know that I like to dissociate, I like to detach. And passive engagement is where I get my kind of back pats, but at the same time, not full engagement. We meet physical and emotional needs, but we forego the spiritual often, right? And we miss the book of James. The book of James is, hey, what good is it to tell somebody the Lord loves you and be blessed without giving them food if they're hungry? You know, so again, there's places of where, um, and I think that there's a practical need. Like we we want to, I'm sorry, that's the other, James is going to be for the other, but, but, but basically we don't really tap into that spiritual often right? You're sitting there having a conversation with somebody. There's five bucks on the side of the road. Here you go. And the easy thing is here, go get some food. And here's a, here's a Big Mac as opposed to, Hey, all right, let me pray for you because we don't want to go there. What if he asks me for stuff? I can't, what if I, I don't want to open myself up all these things. You guys with me on this, right? Mm -hmm. So we're okay with physical. We're okay with emotional. We're okay with financial. We're not great with the spiritual conversation. So passive engagement looks like why are we this way? Uh, because it requires minimal effort and gives us a sense of fulfillment. Right? We're doing something. It's valuable. <coughs> but it requires minimal effort. I think passive engagement is relatively common for me. That anybody on the outside looking in goes, oh, look, he's, he's helping people. He's giving people. He's serving people. But there isn't a lot of cost to it. There isn't a lot of discomfort to it. It's a lot of responsiveness, not a lot of initiative. Um, quick thoughts about that before we go to the other side of the pendulum. Passive engagement as a response. The difference between being proactive and reactive. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I work with the girls and at work, you know, that's what makes that, that's what thing that separates the great from the good of those that are proactive versus reactive. Anybody can be reactive, and that's that passive engagement. Yeah, it's like, sure, I can't do anything, it's thrown my way. Yeah, but to be proactive and actually go address something, yeah, so versus just giving over the five dollars, praying for that person. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Any other thoughts? Passive engagement. Life lived in passive engagement. I think it's seeking the path that leads resistance, really, to what it is. We want things to be easy. Yeah. Well, and we don't necessarily want things to be easy. We just don't want them to be difficult enough to be uncomfortable, right? Yeah, it's like I want my measured allotment of inconvenience. I'm, I'm good with up to here, but not there. Mm-hmm. Dial it down. Let's go to a seven and a half on the inconvenience. I'm not good with eight and a half. I'm not good with, or I'm not good with the uncapped uncertainty. 
what if that six and a half conversation goes to a 12 and a half because I talk about the spiritual side? Anybody else been in that place? Like, uh, I don't feel like getting, I don't feel like getting deep in the conversation. Here's your five bucks. Get yourself a Big Mac. We're cool. That's one side. I think on the other side, we, instead of passively engage, we overactively engage. And I think that this is common in the church as well. And this is, of the two word pictures I gave before, maybe this is more on the side of charging hell with a water pistol, engaging every single, well, living life under the burden of humanity's salvation. And I've been there before. And I have lived life being burdened by the salvation and eternal consequence of every single person that I engage. That's not, that's not mine to bear. And so I just want to say that the nature of God is, we'll, we'll look at that. We'll look at some of the indices of what this looks like. We initiate as it comes to everything. Everything is an initiation, right? Everything is just proactive, go, do, be, act. There's not a whole bunch of rest, wait, pause, seek first. We compel the faith of others to look like our own. Hey, this is what faith in God looks like. Looks like this. Going, serving, loving, dying, being. That might not be somebody's faith journey. But if we're overactively engaged, often we ascribe to them what we see as the best. For what they might be living as the the good or the better, right? And that's where Christian judgment comes in. <laughs> God bless your heart. I know that you give 10%, but have you gone to Peru or whatever? That's our grossness. That's not holiness. Conversely, we focus on manipulating the physical and the emotional to achieve a spiritual. Okay? So this is getting kind of ouch. Man, I think that it's a holistic picture. And this is for anybody who doesn't know me or my story. I mean, I've lived as a missionary's kid, worked overseas as a missionary, been in third world countries probably 12 years of my life, okay? So here's the thing. You have to go and meet the physical needs. You have to go and meet the food needs, the emotional needs, all the stuff. <clears throat> we need to go and speak to the spiritual brokenness of the condition. But often somebody who's over actively engaged is using food and shelter as a manipulative tool to force the spiritual conversation as opposed to saying this is the gospel this is the good news and and, and marrying the two together um, leveraging buying spiritual hunger as opposed to addressing it I don't want to go off on that but that's just a reality We carry the burden of salvation. If we're overactively engaged, we carry the burden of salvation. Maybe more than Jesus does, it seems, right? Have we ever been like, thought of saying, man, I, we would never overtly say this, but we're like, man, I care so much about that person, almost even more than Jesus cares about that person. And that's not a thing, by the way. If you go back and you look at the ministry of Jesus, hey, go back and read. Go back and read the Gospels. I was reading back through them again this morning. Man, there's people that Jesus passes by. Like, on the way to Jericho, the only reason Jesus stopped and prayed for beggars is two separate times. One is 
the blind beggar Bartimaeus and the other one was two beggars was because they called out to him, right? How many other beggars were there that he was passing by? There's multiple times where it was said of Jesus that he woke up the next morning and moved to a different region. But there's still people in that region who needed him, right? How come he would face the need and still walk away? There's other times where it says that every single person who was brought to him, he healed. All I can say was this. Jesus didn't live under a mandate that his fulfillment was healing every single person that he encountered. His mandate was that I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only act when the Father asks me to act. And if he tells me to go to the left, I go to the left. If he tells me to extend my hand and heal, I extend my hand and heal. And if I bypass, if, if for some reason... Poor Johnny, the blind man or the deaf man, missed out today because he was sick. And he wasn't there on Jerusalem when I passed by. There's not this overwhelming burden of grief that Jesus lived with because he knew that every... Here's an interesting thought process. You know that every single person that Jesus healed still died? Think about that. Every single person that Jesus brought back from the dead still died. So the reality of eternal consequence doesn't mean that we have to enact some sort of powerful engagement of every single thing on behalf of every single person. All it's asking of us is to respond in faith to what God's putting right in front of us. And if he says, go to the left, go to the left, go to the right, go to the right. Jesus said, I don't do anything except what I see the Father do. And what is being asked of us is not to care more than Jesus does for the world. Simply to respond to the person in front of us that he's asking us to care about. Because you're getting back to that conversation. A good friend of mine, a guy named Keith Wheeler, he used to be, not anymore. It's been a long time since I talked to him. But he walked around the world with a cross. And he says, Jesus, God the Father, has a heartbeat. And this is what it sounds like. People. 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 If we miss that, that's all the gospel is about is people. So when it comes to overactively engaging... The reason we do this is because it's the easiest way to apply a law to living. It's the easiest way to say, well, I can do that because here's the ladder I can climb. Here's what I can do. Every single person, I have to hand out 10 tracks. I have to do this. I have to do that. And the problem is, is that we swing to the pendulum of passive engagement or to the overactive engagement. And we have a really, really hard time living in wholesome, healthy tension. And here's the thing. Tension is actually a good thing. And I don't like tension. Like right now, I'm standing upright because of tension. There's a tension of gravity pushing down on me and a tension of my legs pushing back up against gravity that allows me to not just float, but also not to be flat. And it's only in that place of suspension, that tension, that good and bad together working against each other that I'm able to accomplish anything. Think of the political process. An interesting guy that I like to listen to, a guy named Jordan Peterson, He's railed against as a hyper-conservative. He's not. He's actually really moderate. But he says, here's the thing. We're trying to throw away the left completely or throw away the right completely. What we have to realize is there's really good things about the right. There's really good things about the left. And for us to have a successful future together, it's actually those living in tension with each other, counterbalancing, working with each other. So what this is asking of us, everything in our lives requires a tension. I don't love that. I'm not crazy about that. But at the same time, I have to counterbalance it and bring it into sight with this. Guess what? I want to dissociate. I want to detach. I want to go home and just check out and not have to engage. And when I got three hours in an afternoon where there's zero to do and I'm sick of TV, I actually not have to just like, I'll just go to sleep as opposed to like actually choose. Hey, I can engage God. I want that. 
But on the other side, there's a place of where this tension of choosing to engage your kids when you come home after you've just engaged the brokenness of humanity and saying, I can't do this, but you give me grace to. That healthy tension, that active engagement, I believe it looks like this. Seeking the Lord while he may be found. Asking him, God, what, what do you have of me? What does my day look like? You want me to go and talk to every single person that I come across and say, do you know Jesus? Fine, that's your call. You want me to not talk to a single person today and simply go home and sleep? Uh, that sounds like you, God. Is, is that you? <laughs> okay, you call that on me. That's what my response is. Faith. My firm belief is this, the wrong step in faith, in true faith, the wrong step from a heart of true faith pleases God more than the right step from a heart of fear. Because it's faith that pleases God. For whoever comes to God must believe that he is and rewards those who seek him. One, the second thing is stepping out in faith. Rather than being responsive, it's stepping out into a place of discomfort. Not waiting, oh, uh, yeah, I, I got seven bucks here. Here, here you go, pal. It's initiating discomfort in faith. Not because we feel good about it. <laughs> hey, I gave $200. No, who cares how much you gave? It's did I do it in response to the Holy Spirit asking of me, hey, do you want to give? Because I want you to. And me saying, okay. Which comes back to the third point, measured. We measure everything if we're living in the passive engagement, in active engagement, in tension. We take the measure cap off. And we say, okay, you want all of me? You want 10 of my hours? You want 100% of me at this moment? I don't have it. I'm driving down the road. I, I'm, I'm not great at this, by the way. But every now and then I got these, you know, little rare moments. Driving down the road the other day, and uh, I needed to get home. My wife, my kids, all the above. And there was a guy stopped on the Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and he was pushing a Suburban, trying to push a Suburban young black man, had his arm in a cast, and his white, what I found out later, was his fiance with six kids. True story. Didn't have any money. Was trying to push it up into the Enterprise Rent-A-Lot, right? And out of gas. And I thought, I need to get home. And I decided, no, I'm just going to go and do this. And I didn't know what they wanted. I didn't know all, all the above. But I chose at that moment, I'm not going to measure this. It just is what it is. And it didn't cost much for me. I put some money in the tank. I gave them a little bit of money on the road. And I got to pray for them. And they were crying. And they were touched and we were able to have like an amazing moment that's an eternal moment but it wasn't because I went capped and saying okay I've got 20 bucks I'm only going to give you this I'm going to give you that and trust me I'm not a hero when it comes to stuff like that but when I left I thought okay man I can't go in measured I can't go in calculating I can't go in saying well I'll only do this and if they respond in kind then I'll maybe do that it is an honor to God to respond in faith not to that person that my engagement is not of that person and making sure that they fulfill the worth of my gift. It is me saying, this is my life sacrifice to you. I don't care if they respond well. Luke 6, 38 says, Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It will be poured back into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Last couple of thoughts here about active engagement. Trust the day of small beginnings. These little, imprecise, unspecial moments. Those little things are what will grow into great and mighty promises, oaks of righteousness, plannings of God for the display of His glory, both in your children and your own life. Don't despise a day of small beginnings. Choosing daily to relinquish ownership of your life, your children, your money. 
asking for direction and not worrying about the results. Last thought here. If you don't have it, you can't give it. We were passing by somebody, a panhandler on the side of the road the other day, and Keller's like, hey, Dad, let's give him 20 bucks. I was like, I don't, I don't have any money on me. He's like, well, why don't you give him 20 bucks? Like, dude, I don't have any money. And I was like, why don't you give him 20 bucks? He's like, well, I don't have 20 bucks, period. I was like, well, <laughs> you can't give what you don't have. Just a normal principle of childhood, right? What are we trying to give to people that in which we might not have ourselves? If you don't have a love of God, if you don't have an understanding of his kindness towards you, his covenant with you, his purpose, his peace, his presence, if you don't have that, you can't give it. No four-track law, no spiritual breakdown of the gospel is going to save somebody. It is the reality that to whom much has been given, much can be um, asked of. Um, We're going to talk about this over the next few weeks. So... Let's wrap up and get out of here. And uh, one last thought. Small moments. There's all these little small moments. Don't just wait for them to come. Look for them. Anticipate. And I think that that's probably the single biggest distinction between a passive engagement and an active engagement. It's not just saying, oh, what, what, what's going to happen today? It's saying, Lord, what is going to happen today? And be looking, be expecting, be anticipatory of God's kingdom shown. Let's pray and get out of here. God, I love you.